I'm Tisha Bader and in the news, the killing of Al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri, taken out by a U.S. drone strike on July the 31st. Zawahiri was a major figure in the planning of the 9-11 terror attacks and mastermind of other deadly attacks against Americans, including the bombing of the USS Cole and of the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. And just a few months after 9-11, the kidnapping and murder of Jewish journalist Daniel Pearl. May his memory be for a blessing. Well, we are honored to have Judea Pearl, Daniel's father, joining us here on JBS today. Judea Pearl is the Chancellor's Professor of Computer Science and Statistics at UCLA and Director of the UCLA Cognitive Systems Laboratory. He is known internationally for his contributions to artificial intelligence, human reasoning, and philosophy of science. He is a recipient of numerous scientific awards, including the 2012 Turing Award. He is also president of the Daniel Pearl Foundation. Judea, thank you so much for being with us here on JBS. Thank you, Tisha, for having me. So if I can first ask you, what was the first thing that entered your mind when you heard about al-Zawahiri being taken out? I felt a personal relief, I must say, uh, sort of uh, settling an account which was uh, opened for over 20 years now uh, with Al-Qaeda and especially with Al-Zawahiri being an, the ideologue of Al-Qaeda, not so much the executor or the implementer of their policies of hate. And uh, I think because I believe that Dani was killed by this ideology of global jihad, that he was uh, a master brain of. And um, so I felt a personal relief sort of uh, closure. Um, it's hard to imagine that um, it will make any practical difference. There will be someone else taking his place and continue. Um, we hear already that, uh, um, that ISIS and their companies are claiming to be the heirs of Al-Qaeda and continuing the global jihad ideology. So there will be some other leader taking over, no question about it. But for us, for us American and for us Jews, there is something in the inner closure, in the belief that there is some rules of right and wrong. And that there is this, um, it sounds like an archaic um, idea of uh, justice. That justice has a point Someone up there is taking care of justice. We think it's just an archaic um, legend, but it isn't, because it connects us together. It provides us with vocabulary and with, with ideas and with metaphors and intellectual resources to believe we have something that unites us. We have something that puts us together, and we are on the right side of history. 
therefore, in terms of his inspiration to our children and grandchildren, it's very important, the idea of global justice. I might even say divine justice. Okay? Although I'm an atheist myself, but I, I wouldn't mind advocating the idea of divine justice. It served an immensely important um, element in our education, in education and inspiration of our children. So I felt a tremendous relief. And do you feel in, in speaking about that divine justice that it sort of restores or gives some sort of a, of a balance like of good, perhaps for a moment, having a little more on its, a little more weight than the powers of evil? That is exactly what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. We must believe in that balance being handled and managed by some forces, perhaps divine forces, but it's not really divine forces, it's, it's our forces. It's what inspires us and what keeps us together. So in terms of those elements, it's extremely important to believe that there is such a notion called justice. And I want to read uh, the tweet that you wrote um, when you, after you heard the news about Azawahiri, I'll just read it. Uh, you wrote, I have a personal account to close with Al-Qaeda, more so with Al-Zawahiri, the ideologist, as you just mentioned, than with bin Laden or Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the executioners of our son Daniel. Today, you said, I feel an inch closer to closure. Angels in heaven tell me they feel that way too. I stand I, behind it. <laughs> Correct, I, yeah. And I, and I can't and, imagine the, the complexity of, of feelings of that, that you had, but gaining some semblance, getting closer to closure, as you mentioned earlier, is certainly of great significance. We still have an account to settle with Khalid Sheikh Muhammad and with the other people engaged with the Daniels uh, murder, which are uh, in Pakistan, and which the uh, Supreme Court of Pakistan had essentially released. They're still in jail, but they are in uh, very comfortable quarters in jail. And um, we are waiting the Supreme Court to be, to um, reconvene soon and handle this case. So this is still pending and we hope that the State Department will weigh in on these deliberations. I certainly hope so. And as you mentioned, it's, it's 20 years, which seems like a very long time for legal proceedings and for that kind of, of justice. And as you said, they, the, the uh, terrorists in Pakistan were indicted and then jailed, but then released, but are still in some sort of a, um, of a jail that's not as maximum security or for as high offenses. So this must be difficult, just that it, it is dragging on for so many years. It is difficult. And uh, 
it also has a practical element. What kind of message they are sending to their children? This is the key issue. I'm always uh, a practical person. I care more about the about tomorrow than about the past. So in terms of tomorrow, I know that uh, many, many Pakistanis are very concerned about the education of their children and the impact of these terrorists and the jihadi movie, movement on their um, growing up. And this is a very dangerous message that the killers of Daniel Pearls could go free. It, it's simply a, a license for, uh, for terrorism. There's no other word I can use. A license for, the, for their fight against modernity and against uh, everything that, uh, that Pakistanis want to be against the message of their states and the ideals of their society. So I hope they get over their uh, impulse of freeing these people out of a sense of uh, pride on the national uh, patriotism and defying the US, whatever caused them to free them. It's a, simply a, a bad message to their children. And in speaking about the future and everything that you have chosen to do, you and your late wife, since your profound loss, using the opportunity to try and educate, to try and show the forces of good, to try and bring understanding between the East and the West. Talk a bit about that struggle and the, the things that you've chosen to really speak about and try and educate about, including anti-Semitism and uh, the, the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign against Israel, taking those steps and trying to make the forces for good stronger than the forces for hate that, that took Danny from you. Well, again, we assessed the practicality of the tragedy. I mean, what we can, what good can we get from the tragedy that happened to us and to Danny? Uh, not in terms of uh, memorizing Danny. He is uh, dead and uh, the, we cannot bring him back. But um, his word and his message and his legacy inspired several communities that would otherwise not be heard to the side of good and to, to act rather than remain silent. So uh, one community, of course, is the uh, Jewish community. Danny's last words, I'm Jewish, uh, reverberates as a a message of pride and message of uh, of identity. And it is extremely inspirational to young Jews to look at Danny and say, he wasn't right-winger, he wasn't uh, definitely, he wasn't Islamophobic, right? He was one of us, 
And he, in the last minutes of his life, said, I am Jewish. And he told the story about his great-grandfather establishing a town in Israel and being proud of that, as if saying he was not defiant. He was not trying to be provocative. But as if he said, I'm Jewish, and if you have problem with that, it's your problem, not mine. And this is exactly the kind of reaction of self-respect that young Jews today must have. And therefore, we have the um, obligation to continue his legacy in the midst of young Jewish students and uh, uh, and faculty, okay, <laughs> yeah, to continue and to uh, to understand, and that's why we have launched the project of writing the book "I'm Jewish," and giving um, giving a reader a panoramic view of how Jews defined themselves in the post nine eleven era. So that was the reason why we launched. And it's the best book, by the way. I'm not biased. It's the best book on Jewish identity. It won the National Book Award, um, by the way, and has contributions from um, some incredible people in the Jewish world and, and truly is, is so inspiring. Judea, as we mentioned, you are a professor at UCLA. You've been there for many, many years. So you're on a college campus. Do you see or do you hear from students who do face pressures from the BDS movement, whether it be from Students for Justice in Palestine or from other groups? What kind of question is that? <laughs> the campus today is the hub of racism. Yeah. Racism, and I'm not using the word anti-Semitism on purpose. I'm using racism against Zionist students. And it is a carnival of hatred. Okay? With the players running around like chickens without head, not knowing what to do. Some of them know what to do. Who knows what, what they're aiming to do? The BDS people, they are the only players who know exactly what they are after and they are successful. The Jewish leadership is ineffective and totally futile uh, in their effort because they do, not they do not understand that the issue here is Zionism and not anti-Semitism. Talk hate... about that for a moment. Talk about that term that you use Zionophobia? I use the term Zionophobia. Okay. Which stands for the obsessive and relentless denial, an irrational denial of Jewish right for self-determination for homeland. Okay. This is the issue. The students, that are, our students, scream, we are Zionists and we are discriminated against by virtue of us being Zionist. And their complaints remained unechoed. The Jewish leadership continues to say anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism. To the deaf sounds of yawning 
whenever you say the word anti-Semitism, you are facing a, a person who is yawning. Oh, the Jews are playing the victimhood card again. We heard it before. And they kept on saying, and the administration of the university is so happy to hear the word anti-Semitism. Anti you know why? Because today the word anti-Semitism gives them a license for inaction. It becomes a cover word, a cover for inaction. They can appoint a task force, a committee okay, to philosophize and study the difference between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, criticism against Israel, Israel policies, and philosophize for the next five to 10 years and do nothing. Why? Because they can come up and say, you see, even Jews do not agree on what anti-Semitism is. And indeed they can quote the, the Jerusalem definition and the Nexus definition just to say, you see, even the Jews don't agree on what anti-Semitism is. Our weapon should be anti-Zionism. Because this is, <clears throat> I mean, first, this is a complaint. This is what we are facing. And that uh, a, a sign like Zionism out of Kuni, which was hang out on the face of the building in Kuni's campus, right? This is the manifestation of the greatest racism today to take to uh, discriminate against Israeli and Zionist students on campus, not Jews. We have been used to keep on uh, fighting the anti-Semitism the anti fight because it is socially accepted that anti-Semitism is bad. And anti-Zionism must have some pinch of legitimacy. Mm. The other way around, anti-Zionism is much worse form of racism, first because it targets the most vulnerable part of our people. At least 50 or 60 percent, at least, of the Jews in Israel. It targets their dignity and their sovereignty and their um, right to normalcy. So that's why it's a worse form of racism. And, uh, and <laughs> it has so many uh, positive and effective elements to the word xenophobia. It, I, I, I can spend two hours. Number one, it tells you there's something wrong with you if you are anti-Zionism, not with me. Number two, it tells you, I'm not evading the debate. I'm inviting you to debate because I can win the debate at the core of its debate. Hands down, I can, I can win it. Let's talk about the history of Zionism. Let's talk the denial of normalcy that the Palestinians have subjected my people to. So I'm not evading a debate. I can win because we are talking about the core of the conflict and the core of the conflict is exactly 
what uh, we should argue about. This is where it's uh, the strength of our um, arguments. Yeah. And it's it's so interesting what you're saying and and maybe also complex in that, as you're saying, Zionism or to be a Zionist is is so often used, co-opted and used by people to to be a, a terrible word, to to be people equated to racism, people equated to um, using an offensive word when in fact to be anti-Zionist, you're saying is is racist. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's, it's, it's taking the most back dangerous that form of racism that we have today more dangerous than anti-Semitism. And I explained so, why. Please. And, well, I, I just tell you, it, because, number one, it targets the most vulnerable part of our people. It targets the glue that holds us together. We are a people of a story, of history. History is what puts us together. Collective memories, the story of the Bible, the story of our history from Khmelnytsky to the Inquisition to the rise of Israel. That's what holds us together. We have lost the glue that used to be religion. How many of us are wearing yarmulka or shomrei mitzvot or keeping kosher? Few. Instead, we have a glue today. The glue is our history. Israel is a culmination of Jewish history. And when you attack that, element, you attack the basis of our being. Now, religion doesn't have a monopoly on human sensitivity. Since when? Oh, since I'm in America, <clears throat> religions are ferociously protected. Political opinion is not. And therefore, they use anti-Zionism as, as if it was a political opinion. And therefore, it is protected, as opposed to Islamophobia, for instance, which is a cardinal sin today. You can't be Islamophobic because religions are ferociously protected. Well, it ain't so. Religion is no longer the sole um, monopolizer on human sensitivity. And we have seen it already in the abortion debate. Okay. American people decided that pro-freedom <laughs> pro or pro-choice is as protected, is as important, is as uh, immutable to our identity as pro-life, which is a religious aspect. So religion is no longer have, have, have monopoly on human sensitivity. There are other components to our identity and to our deep belief that should be protected. One of them is pro-choice. And to get back to our Zionism, the other one is, is our identity. We Jews have historical identity. We should be as protected as the religious identity of other minorities. This is part of, that's why the word Zionophobia put everything into context. And it rhymes with Islamophobia on purpose. 
we are asking for the same protection that Muslims demand on the basis of our being Zionist, namely people of history bonded together by the glues of common memories. This is what makes our identity. This is make us Jews of what we are. Of course, there are some Jewish, so-called Jewish people who are anti-Zionist, like the Ture Karta and maybe Peter Baynard okay, and other kind of new prophets. But these are fringe. Most Jews are Zionists. In heart, if not in by mouth. Okay? And there are many manifestations of this sentiment and this feeling. Okay? So that's why this is what we are. Zionism is organic part of our identity. It cannot be decided. And I advocate that we focus on the moral side of anti-Zionism, not on the legal one. We can go, of course, and argue uh, for the acceptance of the IRA definition of anti-Semitism and fight the legal uh, battles um, against the university, which, you know, USC and uh, I, I believe CUNY is also under investigation by the Justice Department for uh, violating uh, some rule um, against against the anti-Semitism. Yeah. Okay, anti-Semitism can serve as an instrument for the legal battle, but we are after, after changing minds and hearts of students on campus. They do not care about the legal battle. They care about the moral dimension. And we have a moral claim. And the moral claim is that anti-Zionism is an attack against our identity as people, and we have the same right as Latino, and we would like to demand the same standing, the same status on campus as a Mexican has. You wouldn't become uh, uh, anti-Latino. Um, it, it's a matter of national origin. And you wouldn't deny Mexicans their right for their independence in Mexico. Okay. This is the kind of protection we want. It's not really demand for protection. We are not victims. We are demanding equity on campus because we are worth it. We have something to offer to the campus. This is something we should keep in mind. Yeah. We have we have unique. Um, we, I'm saying, we Zionists, we have unique experience in nation building, in, in resilience, in fighting 75 years of um, attacks, both physical and um, ideological. We can teach and we can carry this experience and teach other minorities on campus what it means to survive and to be proud and to be a contributor to the uh, mosaic of diversity on campus. That is what we are claiming. Judea, you make such wonderful points and really explain and, and express uh, so beautifully this struggle. And again, I just wanna get back to 
your son to Daniel Pearl to your for decades now making the choice to fight on the side of good to fight against the hate that was behind Daniel's murder and to make the world a better place and we thank you so very much for joining us on JBS for speaking to us about these very important issues and only wish for you and your family the very best going forward. Thank you, Tasha, for having me. I always uh, welcome the opportunity to talk with the audience. Thank you so very much. And we also just want to mention the important work of the Daniel Pearl Foundation with a, a beautiful mission and um, a way of remembering Daniel and also, again, acting for, for tolerance, for understanding, for moderation, for education. We thank you, Judea Pearl, so much for being here on JBS for In the News. Thank you, Tisha. And thank you, as always, to our director, Sloan Copeland, transmissions manager, John McDevitt, our technical manager, Michael Paley, and our producer, Carol Lilienthal. And thank you for watching In the News. <laughs>